bow with me in prayer. Father, we appeal to you today on the basis of that great life that was just sung about. Hear our cry. It's a room full of really needy people dressed up real nice, God. We need your mercy. We need your grace. We need forgiveness. We really need to be lined back up with what you're about and what you want us to be about. So, if your mercy would extend even to my words now, God, use them for that great, beautiful purpose in our lives. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. There are times when you can just sense that you're lined up with God. You know, you know what I'm talking about? There's times when it just seems right. Like, when we roll those numbers out, you see how many books of the New Testament we made available in that one offering on that one day. Doesn't it just feel right? Just, it just seems right. You know, you deal with your kids, and they rightly, and they respond well. It just, it's sweet. It just seems right. You know? You love on a neighbor. You, you put in a good day's work for the glory of your king. You sign up for study, serve. <laughs> Shameless plug. It just seems right. You know, you can ju- you just, you're lined up. And then there are times when you're not. And you're thinking, I am off. I am on some rabbit trail that has taken me to a place I did not intend to go. And so what we're about this morning and for the next number of mornings is getting a sense for what God's about in history and in our day, so we can line up with him and experience all that he has for us. And so today we're going to go back and dive into the rest of the story. We, we've been through the Old Testament so far this year. We're going to dive into the New Testament today. And, and so far we've seen that the Bible can really unfold in, in a, we're calling it a six-act story or play. And the first act is the creation of the world. God spoke into existence everything that is, and, and he did a darn good job. It's very good. And that's the first act that we saw at the beginning of the Old Testament. The second act, though, undid all that, a thing we call the fall, when Adam and Eve chose to disobey God and go their own way, when they got misaligned with God, and everything got bent out of shape as a result of that, even creation. Yielding thorns and thistles. But the central focus of the bentness of our world is our own hearts. And as we watch the rest of the Old Testament unfold, it's just one bend after another away from God and then God lovingly pulling people back. That's that third act of the Old Testament. Making ready for the king. God's choosing of Israel. As soon as things got off track, God put in place a rescue plan to bring his people and all of creation back in line with his good and perfect plan for it. And so, at the end of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, there's about 400 years when there's no recorded revelation of God. There's nothing in the Bible. Malachi stops 400 years later. Matthew picks it up. 
with the story of the birth of, of Christ. And during those years, um, God's people are, some of them are in the promised land. Most of them are scattered all over the place, and they are oppressed. And the Persians rule over them, the Greeks, finally the Romans. And one of the worst oppressors during that interlude between the Old and New Testament is a guy, his name was Antiochus Epiphanes, and he was a ruler of the Greeks. And he... Um, he did everything he could to stamp out God's people and their, their culture. Um, it says, uh, in his ruthless attempt to Hellenize the Jews, Antiochus passed strict laws against all the religious practices that marked Israel out as God's own people. He forbade circumcision, the observance of the Sabbath, temple sacrifices, and those who dared to obey Antiochus were put to death by cruel means. Copies of the Jewish law were burned. Jews were ordered to make unclean sacrifices to pagan gods. And finally, interestingly enough, on December 25th of the year 167 B.C., Antiochus deliberately polluted the temple of Yahweh, the true God, by setting up an altar to Zeus, the uh, prominent god of the Greek gods, and there offered up a pig on the altar, the most unclean sacrifice that could be offered in the eyes of the Jews. Um, Romans, of course, took over after that, and then rebellions began to pop up against them, and whenever the Jews would rebel, there were mass crucifixions. They just slaughtered them wholesale. And so the people are waiting and longing for the coming of a king who will set them free. And they wait for these 400 years and for thousands of years before that. They are waiting. And finally, today, we start Act 4, the coming of the king and his kingdom. And the key word for you to remember in Act 4 is Jesus. He is that king. And his story is told in about the front half of the New Testament in four books called Gospels. And they are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they all tell a story, an angle on the story of Christ. Um, Why four Gospels? Well, try to tell the story of this king in one Gospel. I mean, the reason there are four in part is simply he is too magnificent for any one angle to rightly and richly tell his story. And so there are four of these stories. They all come from a different angle. Um, you know, I, I have a book at home called Lincoln on Leadership. And it's not really a biography of Lincoln. It's a selection of his acts and principles based on his leadership. And, and that's kind of what these Gospels are. They're really not true biographies. They are slices and angles and perspectives on this multifaceted, amazing life of this king lived out um, before us. Um, For instance, Matthew, many believe, writes primarily to a Jewish mindset because he presents Jesus' genealogy and the fulfillment of lots of Old Testament prophecy. Jesus' power and authority are emphasized. He presents Jesus as the Messiah. Mark, a number feel like, has a more Roman way of thinking. Jesus is the servant, the suffering servant who came to give his life as a ransom for many. 
Others say Luke comes at it more in a way that a Greek would understand as he presents Jesus as the Son of Man from a very careful historical position. And John, many have said, is kind of the universal gospel that's written to all as Jesus is presented as the eternal Son of God. Those are just broad brush strokes, but each of these gospels brings a different angle on Christ's life. We have four Gospels because of the stunning glory of Christ and because His story is for all peoples. It's for everybody, not just for one group of people or just one perspective. Now, it's important as we start the New Testament that we realize that it's not not disconnected from the Old Testament. It's not like two different books bound under one cover by the same author. But it's one great unfolding story. And if you want to read about that, a a book that I really like, I think I've recommended it before, it's called The Drama of Scripture, Finding Our Place in the Biblical Story. This is a great, you don't have to know a lot of big or foreign words to understand this book. And it's worth the price of the book just to read the summary of the life of Christ. And I'm going to refer to this a lot today. It's really, really helpful for me as I work through this. But the, uh, the authors of this book point out to us how painstakingly the authors of the Gospels work to connect Jesus, the stories of Jesus' birth and the beginnings of his ministry to the Old Testament. Um, for instance, they say that Mark starts his story of Jesus with John the Baptist's ministry that connects directly to Malachi's prophecy at the end of the Old Testament that there was going to come somebody who was going to get us ready for the king. That somebody is John the Baptist. And Mark starts out with his ministry to connect us back. Matthew, they say, takes us back even farther because he starts with a genealogy of Jesus that goes all the way back to Abraham, all the way back really to those early part of Act 3, In the Old Testament, Luke goes back even farther because his genealogy traces Jesus all the way back to Adam, all the way to the beginning of Act 1. He's connecting, he's building a bridge between the whole Old Testament and Jesus' coming. John, if it's possible, goes back even further. He says, Jesus is the eternal Word of God who even before creation was with the Father in perfect unity. So all of these Gospels work to connect us to the Old Testament. But their focus is really not on the early life of Jesus. Uh, You've got a couple of them that talk about his birth, one mention of a story when he was 12 uh, in the temple, and then all the rest of the focus of all of the Gospels is on the last three or so years of Jesus' life. And you can think of it this way, that there was a year of inauguration, As Jesus got things started and consolidated things, there was a year of popularity when the crowds were gathering around Jesus and everything was going great. And then the last year of Jesus' life and ministry is a year of opposition. And that's the main focus of these four books, those three-plus years at the close of Jesus' life. Now, it's interesting. When Jesus started those three years, he's mostly ran around this area, 
the Sea of Galilee. It's where he's from, where he grew up. And most of his ministry happens around there until opposition begins to spring up. And that's interesting where Jesus goes. Jesus goes north up into this area. You know who's up there? Gentiles, non-Jews. And Jesus is taking his message to the nations. Just like the Old Testament. Just like God's plan was unfolding in the Old Testament. And then Jesus travels south to Jerusalem. But he doesn't go over this way where Jews would. He goes through Samaria so that he can have interaction with another group of people who are not Jewish, the Samaritans. Um, Jesus set his face. It says that he resolutely set out for Jerusalem where he would die for the sins of all the peoples, of all nations. And he starts with a small band of followers, disciples uh, made up of fishermen and tax collectors. Um, Jesus was always, in our opinion, we would say, always bad at personnel decisions. Fishermen, tax collectors, kind of low-end guys, He's going to pick these guys to take the gospel to all peoples. Right? We have to love the stories of the way Jesus called these guys. One of my favorite passages in the New Testament is in John chapter 1, where Andrew, who was following John the Baptist, was introduced to Jesus by John. It says, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two disciples who heard what John the Baptist had said and who had followed Jesus. But the first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon, we know him as Peter, and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that's the Christ. And so from the very first disciple until now, this is what followers of Christ do. They find Christ, and then the people that matter to them, they say, hey, guess who I found? I found the king. I want to introduce you to him. This is what disciples have done since day one. From the beginning, the disciples knew they had to introduce the people they cared about to Jesus. It's the first thing Andrew did. I got to find my brother and let him know who I found. Now, Jesus picks this ragtag band of guys. Not only is he bad at personnel decisions, he has absolutely no discretion in terms of his, who he hangs out with. Jesus was always hanging out with the wrong people, and it was always getting him in trouble. Luke chapter 7. There was a woman who had lived a sinful life. You can read between the lines, and you know what that means. In this town, she learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisees' house, who were strict separatists from anybody that was not the upper echelon religiously. And so she brought an alabaster jar of perfume to that Pharisee's house. Guarantee you, uninvited, unexpected guest, the only time she'd ever been there. And odds are she probably never invited back. She stood behind Jesus at his feet, weeping, And she began to wet his feet with her tears. And then she wiped them with her hair, kissed his feet, and poured perfume on them. Can you imagine this scene of this sinful woman in this purest religious leader's house, weeping and anointing Jesus' feet with her tears and perfume and hair? And the Pharisee who'd invited Jesus saw this. He said to himself, if this man were a prophet, 
he knows who's touching him and what kind of woman she is. That she is a sinner. This was Jesus' reputation. In Luke 15, it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. You know, Jesus was forever getting invited to the wrong kind of party and happily accepting the invitation and showing up and having a grand time. And the religious leaders, it drove them nuts. You know, you read through, especially Luke's gospel, and he takes pains to point out that Jesus liked to hang out with sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes, and the poor and the sick. That marked Jesus' social interaction. And what that means for us is that he has chosen to people his kingdom with folks like us. Like you and me. Now I know that that may be a shock to some of your self-esteem to be linked with that group of people. But Jesus is after the people who know they have no chance of getting in on their own. In fact, people who thought they could get in on their own suffered this kind of rebuke from Jesus in Matthew. Jesus says to some of these highfalutin religious leaders, I tell you the truth, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. Tell that to your rabbi. Prostitutes getting in ahead of you, bud. You know, honestly, though, when you hear that, you hear about those two groups of people, which group do you automatically associate yourself with? Do you see yourself over there with the prostitutes and the sinners? Or do you see yourself as one of those good people who probably deserve to get in on their own merit? How you answer that question is very, very important. Jesus, though, uh, he messed with everybody's categories. He's always hanging around with the wrong kind of people, happily enjoying their company. Because Jesus' kingdom was for everybody. Didn't matter your health, didn't matter your wealth, didn't matter your social status, didn't matter your race, your ethnicity. It was for everybody, and Jesus commissioned his followers to make sure that everybody heard. He said, as he was getting ready to leave, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you are going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. It's for everybody. So you think about that. How welcoming are you to people who don't fit in so good? When was the last time you had somebody in your home who was a bit of an outcast? Or is the gospel you share only for people who are pretty much like you, who pretty much live in your social strata or pretty much hang out in a neighborhood that's at least close to yours? Maybe has your same skin color, your same ethnic background. How about we just make a rule, okay? That at North Wake... Everybody's welcome. 
Okay. Everybody's welcome. It's because it wasn't for that rule. How do you think you got in? You got a friend, he's all tatted up and pierced up and wearing black. Bring him north way. We'll put him on the worship team. <laughs> huh? This kingdom that Jesus brought in, it's, it's for everybody. It's no, no country club. You start reading these gospels, and they're amazing. Jesus is stunning. He does, depending on how you count them, about 50 miracles. These are not things tricksters did or people that were smart did. This, this is God stuff. Um, Jesus does things like... Uh, Heal a mother-in-law. He healed lepers. He healed guys with withered hands. Raised up widows' sons. Cast demons out of people. He he healed blind men. He healed men who couldn't speak. People who couldn't hear. Groups of lepers. He raised a guy from the dead a couple of times. Fed 5,000. The guy walked on water. And I'm talking literally, this is not a figure of speech. This is where the figure of speech comes from. Uh, Jesus did miracles. And they were motivated, a couple things, but mostly uh, Jesus was motivated by compassion. You know, somebody was hungry, he fed them. Somebody was sick, he healed them. And again, one of my favorite stories that demonstrates this is in Luke 7. Now, soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. And as he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out. So you had this collision. Jesus' entourage and a funeral procession are coming head to head at the, funeral, at the city gate. This guy who was being carried out, who was dead, was the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. Large crowd from that town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her. This is driving his actions. And he said, don't cry. Then he went up and touched the coffin. And those carrying it stood still. Because uh, if you were a Jew, you didn't do much coffin touching. And Jesus said, young man, I say to you, get up. And right there, in the streets just outside of the city of Nain, this dead man sat up and started talking. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. And then I'm guessing, it doesn't say this, that he you know, revived all the guys who had just passed out <laughs> all around that funeral procession. You cannot read, you cannot read the Gospels and come away wondering if Jesus cares about people who suffer. Wondering if he cares about you. 
Compassion was behind so many of Jesus' miracles. But he had another motive a lot of times. Um, And that was to help thick-headed people figure out who he was. He was putting it on display. And again, another story that I love that demonstrates this is Mark 2. Jesus enters Capernaum. And the people there heard he'd come. So many gathered. There's no room not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them, and some men came bringing to him a paralyzed friend. Okay? Four guys are carrying him. And since they could not get to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus, and after digging through it, lowered the mat the paralyzed man was lying on. Imagine, you know, you're in a place like this, Jesus teaching them, and all of a sudden they tear the roof open and they lower this guy down on the mat. And Jesus, when he saw their faith, this is what he says to their paralyzed friend. Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, there's some teachers of the law sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier. To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, the authority of God. He said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. So he got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of all of them. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we ain't never seen anything like this, these parts. You know, Jesus revealed himself to be the one who forgives sins, to be God. A lot of his miracles were loaded images that he wasn't just a regular prophet or teacher. He was God. And that's why he accepted worship from people. They're out in a boat. I think this is one of those times when Jesus speaks, the storm dies down, and the guys in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. The Jews did not worship multiple gods. And Jesus does not respond saying, no, 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 guys, 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 you're getting carried away here. Just me, great teacher, great prophet. He doesn't do that. He accepts the worship of men. Um, When we read the Gospels, we're not just reading about a great prophet or a great teacher. We are reading the account of God come to earth with skin on. Imagine that. God walking around with skin on. So he's a whole lot more than a teacher. But let me tell you, as somebody who teaches for a living in a sense, he could teach. Man, he could teach. Um, Crowds used to gather, and Jesus, just to get away from the crowds, used to have to push off in a boat so he could teach him, and they could hear him bouncing off the water. The crowds are so big. He teaches things like this out of Matthew 5. This is from the Sermon on the Mount, one of Jesus' most renowned sermons. He saw the crowds. He went up on a mountainside and sat down, and his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they'll be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they're going to inherit the earth. 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You know, there are whole seminary classes taught on just that part of the Sermon on the Mount. Just the Beatitudes, it's called. If you go to Amazon.com and you look up how many books have uh, Sermon on the Mount in the title, you'll pull up right close to a thousand books just with that search. I mean, this one message is life-shaping like nothing else you could read. You can think about it the rest of your days. Jesus was the master teacher, and he loved to teach in parables, just simple little stories, just simple little stories. But man, do they pack a punch. Here's a case in point, Luke 18. Jesus tells the disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, in a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care about men, yet because this widow keeps pestering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. Jesus said, Listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. And wow, Jesus has just painted a portrait of God and the importance of prayer that will stick in your mind all of your life. But the most penetrating thing is what he does next. He says, however, and I hate these howevers when Jesus does these at the end of these stories. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? I hate those questions. You know that he's after you, that you're about to take the beating of your life. You're not even sure what it means. You know he's after you. What does that mean? What does it mean when he says... When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Well, at least in part it means, is he going to find people faithfully persevering in believing prayer? Is he going to find people praying when he comes back? So what would you say? Let's say Jesus comes back right soon. How would he find you? Faithful believing prayer, big deal for you? Careful to protect that. Um, These parables, they're just little stories. But man, they reach right into your chest, pull your heart out, shake it around, and stick it back in. They are daggers. Jesus, as you read through the Gospels, you're going to find him doing amazing things out of compassion and showing us who he is. You're also going to find him teaching like nobody else. And you find him living 
this exemplary life. You know, you read the Gospels and you just want to be like Jesus. You know, he's like everybody's hero. He's everybody's mentor. I mean, the guy prays all night. He takes children in his arms and blesses them. He cares about the plight of women. He'll stand up and prevail against the most powerful of men. He feeds the hungry. He touches the sick. He can cook up a fresh catch of fish right there on the beach. And he is really, really patient with thick-headed disciples. In fact, in John 13, he actually goes so far as to wash those thick-headed disciples' feet. It's just before the Passover feast. Jesus is just a few hours away from the cross. It's that night. And he knew that the time had come for him to leave his world and go to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world. Now he showed them the full extent of his love. Evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So what's he do? He gets up from the meal. He takes off his outer clothing and he wraps a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin and he begins to do what only the lowest of servants would do. He washed his disciples' dirty, dusty, stinking feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around his waist. You know, he washes the feet of those those disciples who are so full of themselves that they're lobbying him to see who get the good seats in heaven. He washes the feet of the one who refused to believe that Jesus would keep his promise and be raised from the dead. He washes the feet of the one who would deny him three times. He washes the feet of the one who would betray him with a kiss. Jesus, the very Son of God, washes their feet, every one of them. Then he turns to them, and through them he turns to us, and he says, follow me. Do what I have just done. Love one another this way. When he finished washing their feet, Jesus put on his clothes and returned to his place. He says, do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them, you, can, you call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I've done for you. I tell you the truth. No servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. Just hours before he goes to the cross, Jesus is taking time to model how he wants his followers to live. He's doing this great object lesson in love, in servanthood. And it's that. It's an object lesson in what it means to love and serve. Probably one of the most powerful ones you'll ever see. But it's more than that. It's a prefiguring of what he's going to do in just a couple of hours. It anticipates the cross where Christ would do the great act of love 
the great act of servanthood. He would die for someone else's sins. That's what all, this is recorded in all four of the Gospels, detailed accounts of his death and his resurrection. The greatest demonstration of love that will ever be lived unfolds from that little upper room where he washes his disciples' feet. Because in the next 12 hours, King Jesus will be denied and deserted and betrayed and lied about and interrogated and mocked and spat upon and beaten within an inch of his life. He's going to be convicted of trumped-up charges and have to carry his own cross to a hill on the outside outskirts of the city, right out there outside the camp, as it were. And there, each one of the Gospels tells us, they'd crucify him. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull, and then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he didn't take it, and they crucified him dividing up his clothes, and they cast lots to see what each would get. It was the third hour when they crucified him, and the written notice of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. What kind of king is this that ends up crucified as a common criminal? If you were a Roman citizen, they couldn't crucify you. This was for low life. This was for non-citizens. It's interesting, um, this resulted in mockery for the Christian faith to this, from ancient times past um, to this very day. There is a drawing scratched on a wall from the early Roman Empire. I've got a picture of it here. Uh, pardon the, um, well, evidently it didn't make it into this presentation either. Um, what it talks, what it is, is a, it's a picture. In Greek letters, it says, um, "Alexemenos worships God." And there's a little, almost a stick figure. And then there's a man on a cross, but the man on the cross has the head of an ass, and it's a mockery of the cross, because the the Jews believed that only those under a curse would die on a cross. The Jewish encyclopedia puts it, no Messiah that Jews could recognize could suffer such a death, for he that is hanged is accursed by God, according to Deuteronomy. There's the picture. You see the imagery, just that mockery of Christ. The Romans, no king ends up on a cross. This is where all the false messiahs ended up. They'd say they were the Messiah, they're going to deliver the Jews, they'd start a little rebellion, they end up on a cross. And so this made absolutely no sense. But for the followers of Christ, it made sense after that third day, that third morning when there was a commotion around that tomb in that burial ground um, where it says, I don't know what I'm getting through here, Sorry. They entered the tomb. They saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. 
See, we see the cross now looking back through the resurrection. Listen to the description that comes from the drama of of Scripture again. When one begins to look at the cross through the lens of the resurrection, what at first appears to be foolishness is really the wisdom of God. What at first seems to be weakness is really the power of God conquering human rebellion and satanic evil. What appears to be humiliation is a revelation of the glory of God. God's self-giving love, mercy, faithfulness, grace, justice, and righteousness are revealed in the event by which God accomplishes the salvation of his creation. What seems to the world to be Jesus' defeat, the early church proclaims to be his surpassing victory over all the enemies who stand opposed to God's good creation. This apparently meaningless act of violence and cruelty, in fact, reveals the fullest purpose of God, his judgment against sin, his power and will to renew the creation. Seen in one way, the cross is a token of foolishness, weakness, humiliation, defeat, and absurdity. But seen in another way, by those who know that Jesus is alive again from the dead, the cross is full of God's wisdom, power, glory, victory, and purpose. And with that resurrection, the fourth act in our story comes to a close. The king has come, and he has conquered sin and death. Paul, he wrote about it this way. It's the words we still love to use at our funerals for followers of Christ. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death's your sting? Where death's your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the good news. It's the gospel, the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus for us, for outcasts like us. You really should share it. And you really should read it. I'm going to challenge you to have a refresher course on the Gospels this week. Let me give you three great options. First, read a Gospel this week, one of the four. I'll give you a tip. Mark's the shortest. (laughs) You read two chapters a day and you throw in an extra one on the weekends, you'll be through Mark by next Sunday. Read a gospel. Second option, watch a gospel. The gospel of John on DVD, there are others, the Jesus movie is Luke's gospel, Um, the visual Bible has one on Matthew, this is my favorite, it's outstandingly done, you probably rented it, premieres I imagine, you can get it online through Blockbuster, you can buy it, it'd be worth your investment, and you can watch the gospel. And, as many of you know, you can listen to it now. We gave away 600 MP3s of the New Testament in the last few weeks that have the Gospels on them. And so you can stick it in and and listen to it on your commute or when you're on the treadmill instead of watching Oprah. You can read a Gospel, watch a Gospel, or listen to a Gospel this week. If you missed this MP3, by the way, you can go to Faith Comes by Hearing and download the New Testament for free. These are the people we're partnering with to get the gospel to the Kurds. This is the good news. The king has come. 
and he's conquered sin and death on our behalf. Let's stand for closing worship of this great King Jesus.